Welcome to Widdershin Stories, a storytelling podcast with live musical accompaniment by Joe Saborin. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator, guiding you to far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin once upon a time. October in the Chair by Neil Gaiman October was in the chair, so it was chilly that evening, and the leaves were red and orange and tumbled from the trees that circled the grove. Twelve of them sat around a campfire roasting huge sausages on sticks, which spat and crackled as the fat dripped onto the burning apple wood, and drinking fresh apple cider tangy and tart in their mouths. April took a dainty bite from her sausage, which burst open as she bit into it, spilling hot juice down her chin. Beshrew and suck orger on it, she said. Squat March, sitting next to her, laughed low and dirty, and then pulled out a huge, filthy handkerchief. Here you go, he said. April wiped her chin. Thanks, she said. The cursed bag of innards burned me. I'll have a blister there tomorrow. September yawned. You're such a hypochondriac, he said across the fire. And such language... He had a pencil-thin mustache and was balding in the front, which made his forehead seem high and wise. Lay off her, said May. Her dark hair was cropped short against her skull and she wore sensible boots. She smoked a small brown cigarillo that smelled heavily of cloves. She's sensitive. Oh, please, said September. Spare me. October, conscious of his position in the chair, sipped his apple cider, cleared his throat, and said, Okay, who wants to begin? The chair he sat in was carved from one large block of oak wood inlaid with ash, with cedar, and with cherry wood. The other eleven sat on tree stumps equally spaced about the small bonfire. The tree stumps had been worn smooth and comfortable by years of use. What about the minutes? asked January. We always do minutes when I'm in the chair. But you aren't in the chair now, are you, dear? said September with an elegant creature of mock solicitude. What about the minutes? repeated January. You can't ignore them. Let the little buggers take care of themselves, said April, one hand running through her long blonde hair. And I think September should go first. September preened and nodded. Delighted, he said. Hey, said February. Hey, 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 hey. I didn't hear the chairman ratify that. Nobody starts till October says who starts, and then nobody else talks. Can we have maybe the tiniest semblance of order here? He peered at them, small, pale, dressed entirely in blues and grays. 
it's fine, said October. His beard was all colors, a grove of trees in autumn, deep brown and fire orange and wine red. An untrimmed tangle across his lower half of his face, his cheeks were apple red. He looked like a friend, like someone you've known all your life. September can go first. Let's just get it rolling. September placed the end of his sausage into his mouth, chewed daintily, and drained his cider mug. Then he stood up, bowed to the company, and began to speak. Laurent Delisle was the finest chef in all of Seattle. At least, Laurent Delisle thought so, and the Michelin stars on his door confirmed him in his opinion. He was a remarkable chef, it is true. His minced lamb brioche had won several awards. His smoked quail and white truffle ravioli had been described in the gastronome as the tenth wonder of the world. But it was his wine cellar, ah, his wine cellar. That was his source of pride and his passion. I understand that. The last of the white grapes are harvested in me, and the bulk of the reds. I appreciate fine wines, the aroma, the taste, the aftertaste as well. Laurent Delisle bought his wines at auctions from private wine lovers, from reputable dealers. He would insist on a pedigree for each wine, for wine frauds are, alas, too common. When the bottle is selling for perhaps five, ten, a hundred thousand dollars, or pounds, or euros, the treasure, the jewel, the rarest of the rare, the ne plus ultra of his temperature-controlled wine cellar was a bottle of 1902 Châtel Lafitte. It was on the wine list at $120,000. Although it was, in true terms, priceless, for it was the last bottle of its kind. Excuse me, said August politely. He was the fattest of them all, his thin hair combed in golden wisps across his pink pate. September glared down at his neighbor, yes. Is this the one where some rich dude buys the wine to go into the dinner and the chef decides that the dinner the rich dude ordered isn't good enough for the wine so he sends out a different dinner and the guy takes one mouthful and he's got like some rare allergy and he just dies like that and the wine never gets drunk after all? September said nothing. He looked a great deal. Because if it is, you told it before, years ago. Dumb story then, dumb story now. August smiled, his pink cheek shone in the firelight. September said, Obviously, pathos and culture are not to everyone's taste. Some people prefer their barbecues and beer, and some of us like... February said, Well, I hate to say this, but he kind of does have a point. It has to be a new story. September raised an eyebrow and pursed his lips. I'm done, he said abruptly. He sat down on his stump. Then they all looked at one another across the fire, the months of the year. June, hesitant and clean, raised her hand and said, I have one about a guard on the x-ray machines at LaGuardia Airport who could read about all the people from the outlines of their luggage on the screen. And one day she saw a luggage x-ray so beautiful that she fell in love with the person and she had to figure out which person in line it was and she couldn't and she pined for months and months 
And when the person came through again, she knew it this time, and it was the man, and he was a wise and old Indian man, and she was pretty and black and like 25, and she knew it would never work out, and she let him go because she could always tell from the shapes of his bags on the screen that he was going to die soon. October said, Fair enough, young June, tell the one. June stared at him like a spooked animal. I just did, she said. October nodded. So you did, he said, before any of the others could say anything, and then he said, Shall we proceed to my story, then? September sniffed. Out of order there, big fella. The man in the chair only tells his story when the rest of us are through, can't go straight to the main event. May was placing a dozen chestnuts on the grate along the fire, deploying them into patterns with her tongs. Let him tell his story if he wants to, she said. God knows it can't be worse than the one about the wine. And I have things to be getting back to. Flowers don't bloom by themselves, you know. All in favor? You're taking this to a formal vote? February said. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe this is happening. He mopped his brow and with a handful of tissues which he pulled from his sleeve. Seven hands were raised. Four people kept their hands down, February, September, January, and July. I don't have anything personal on this, said July apologetically. It's purely procedural. We shouldn't be setting precedents. It's settled then said October. Is there anything anyone would like to say before I begin? Um, yes. Sometimes, said June. Sometimes I think somebody's watching us from the woods, and then I look and there isn't anybody there, but I still think it. April said, that's because you're crazy. Mm, said September to everybody. That's our April. She's sensitive, but she's still the cruelest. Enough, said October. He stretched in his chair. He cracked a cobnut with his teeth, pulled out the kernel, and threw the fragments of shell on the fire where they hissed and spat and popped. And he began. There was a boy, October said, who was miserable at home, although they did not beat him, and he did not fit well, not his family, his town, nor even his life. He had two older brothers who were twins, older than he was, and who hurt or ignored him, and were popular. They played football, some games one twin would score more and be the hero, and some games the other would. Their little brother did not play football. They had a name for their brother, They called him the Runt. They had called him the Runt since he was a baby, and at first their mother and father had chided them for it. The twins said, But he is the Runt of the litter. Look at him. Look at us. The boys were six when they said that. Their parents thought it was cute. A name like the Runt can be infectious. So pretty soon, the only person who called him Donald was his grandmother when she telephoned him on his birthday and people who did not know him. Now, perhaps because names have power, he was a runt, skinny and small and nervous. He had been born with a runny nose and it had not stopped running in a decade. 
At mealtimes, if the twins liked the food, they would steal his. If they did not, they would contrive to place their food on his plate and he would find himself in trouble for leaving good food uneaten. Their father never missed a football game and would buy an ice cream afterward for the twin who'd scored the most and a consolation ice cream for the other twin who hadn't. Their mother described herself as a newspaper woman, although she mostly sold advertising space and subscriptions. She had gone back to work full-time once the twins were capable of taking care of themselves. The other kids in the boys' class admired the twins. They had called him Donald for several weeks in first grade until the word trickled down that his brothers called him the runt. His teachers rarely called him anything at all, though sometimes themselves... They could be heard to say that it was a pity the youngest Covey boy didn't have the pluck or the imagination or the life of his brothers. The runt could not have told you when he first decided to run away, nor when his daydreams crossed the border and became plans. By the time that he admitted to himself he was leaving, he had a large Tupperware container hidden beneath a plastic sheet behind the garage, containing three Mars bars, two Milky Ways, a bag of nuts, a small bag of licorice, a flashlight, several comics, an unopened packet of beef jerky, and $37, most of it in quarters. He did not like the taste of beef jerky, but he had read that explorers had survived for weeks on nothing else, and it was when he put the packet of beef jerky into the Tupperware box and pressed the lid down with a pop that he knew he was going to have to run away. He had read books, newspapers, and magazines. He knew that if you ran away, you sometimes met bad people who did bad things to you. But he had also read fairy tales. So he knew that there were kind people out there, side by side with the monsters. The runt was a thin ten-year-old, small, with a runny nose and a blank expression. If you were to try and pick him out of a group of boys, you'd be wrong. He'd be the other one, over at the side. The one your eye slipped over. All through September, he put off leaving. It took a really bad Friday, during the course of which both his brothers sat on him, and the one who sat on his face broke wind and laughed uproariously, for him to decide that whatever monsters were waiting out in the world would be bearable, perhaps even preferable. Saturday. His brothers were meant to look after him, but soon they went into town to see a girl they liked. The runt went to the back of the garage and took the Tupperware container out from behind the plastic sheeting. He took it up to his bedroom. He emptied his school bag onto his bed, filled it with his candies and comics and quarters and the beef jerky. He filled an empty soda bottle with water. The runt walked into town and got on the bus. He rode west, ten dollars and quarters worth of west, to a place he didn't know, which he thought was a good start. Then he got off the bus and walked. There was no sidewalk now, so when the cars came past, he would edge over into the ditch to safety. The sun was high. He was hungry. So he rummaged in his bag and pulled out a Mars bars. After he ate it, he found he was thirsty, and he drank almost half of the water from his soda bottle before he realized he was going to have to ration it. He had thought that once he got out of the towns, he would see springs of fresh water everywhere, but there were none to be found. 
There was a river, though, that ran beneath the wide bridge. The runt stopped halfway across the bridge to stare down at the brown water. He remembered something he had been told in school that in the end all rivers flowed into the sea. He had never been to the seashore. He clambered down the bank and followed the river. There was a muddy path along the side of the riverbank and occasionally a beer can or a plastic snack packet to show the people had been that way before, but he saw no one as he walked. He finished his water. He wondered if they were looking for him yet. He imagined police cars and helicopters and dogs all trying to find him. He would evade them. He would make it to the sea. The river ran over some rocks and it splashed. He saw a blue heron and its wings wide glide past him and he saw a solitary end of season dragonflies and sometimes small clusters of midgets enjoying the Indian summer. The blue sky became dust gray and a bat swung down to snatch insects from the air. The runt wondered where he would sleep that night. Soon the path divided and he took the branch that led away from the river, hoping it would lead to a house or to a farm with an empty barn. He walked for some time. As the dusk deepened, until at the end of the path he found a farmhouse half tumbled down and unpleasant looking. The runt walked around it, becoming increasingly certain as he walked that nothing could make him go inside. And then he climbed over a broken fence to an abandoned pasture and settled down to sleep in the long grass with his school bag for his pillow. He lay on his back, fully dressed, staring up at the sky. He was not in the slightest bit sleepy. They'll be missing me by now, he told himself. They'll be worried. He imagined himself coming home in a few years' time, the delight on his family's face as he walked up the path to home, their welcome, their love. He woke some hours later, with the bright moonlight in his face. He could see the whole world as bright as day, like in the nursery rhyme, but pale and without colors. Above him, the moon was full, or almost, and he imagined a face looking down at him, not unkindly, in the shadows, in the shapes of the moon's surface. A voice said, Where do you come from? He sat up, not scared, not yet, and looked around him. Trees, long grass. Where are you? I, I don't see you. Something he had taken for a shadow moved beside a tree on the edge of the pasture, and he saw a boy of his own age. I'm running away from home, said the runt. Whoa, said the boy. That must have taken a whole lot of guts. The runt grinned with pride. He didn't know what to say. You want to walk a bit, said the boy. Sure, said the runt. He moved his school bag so it was next to him on the fence post, so he could always find it again. They walked down the slope, giving a wide berth to the old farmhouse. Does anyone live there? asked the runt. Not really, said the other boy. He had fair, fine hair that was almost white in the moonlight. Some people tried a long time back, but they didn't like it and they left. Then other folk moved in, but no one lives there now. What's your name? Donald, 
said the runt, and then, but they call me the runt. What do they call you? The boy hesitated. Dearly, he said. That's a cool name, Dearly said. I, I used to have another name, but I can't read it anymore. They squeezed through a huge iron gateway, rusted, part open, part closed, and they went into a little meadow at the bottom of the slope. This place is cool, said the runt. There were dozens of stones of all sizes in the small meadow, tall stones bigger than either of the boys and small ones just the right size for sitting on, some broken stones. The runt knew what sort of place this was, but it did not scare him. It was a loved place. Who's buried here? he asked. Mostly okay people, said Dearly. There used to be a town over there, past those trees. Then the railroad came and they built a stop in the next town over, and our town sort of dried up and fell in and blew away. There's bushes and trees now where the town was. You can hide in the trees and go in the old houses and jump out. The runt said. Are they like that farmhouse up there, the houses? He didn't want to go in them if they were. No, said Dearly. No one goes in them except for me and some animals sometimes. I'm the only kid around here. I figured, said the runt. Maybe we can go down and play in them, said Dearly. That would be pretty cool, said the runt. It was a perfect early October night, almost as warm as summer, and the harvest moon dominated the sky. You could see everything. Which one of these is yours, asked the runt. Dearly straightened up proudly and took Runt by the hand. He pulled him to an overgrown corner of the field. The two boys pushed aside the long grass. The stone was set flat into the ground, and it had dates carved into it from a hundred years before. Much of it was worn away, but beneath the dates it was possible to make out the words, Dearly departed. Will never be for- forgotten, I'd wager, said Dearly. Yeah, that's what I'd say, too, said the runt. They went out of the gate, down a gully, and into what remained of the old town. Trees grew through houses and buildings, had fallen on themselves, but it wasn't scary. They applied hide-and-seek, they explored. Dearly showed the runt some pretty cool places, including a one-room cottage that he said was the oldest building in that whole part of the county. It was in pretty good shape, too, considering how old it was. I can see pretty good by moonlight, said the runt, even inside. I didn't know that it was so easy. Yeah, said Dearly, and after a while you get good at seeing even when there isn't any moonlight. The runt was envious. I gotta go to the bathroom, said the runt. Is there somewhere around here? Dearly thought for a moment. I, I don't know. He admitted, I don't do that stuff anymore. There are a few outhouses still standing, but they might not be safe. Best just do it out in the woods. Like a bear, said the run. He walked out the back into the woods that pushed up against the wall of the cottage and went behind a tree. He'd never done that before in the open air. He felt like a wild animal. When he was done, he wiped himself off with fallen leaves, then he went back out in the front. 
dearly was sitting in a pool of moonlight waiting for him. How did you die? asked the runt. I got sick, said dearly. Mama cried and carried off some fierce. Then I died. If I stayed here with you, said the runt, would I have to be dead too? Maybe, said dearly. Well, well, yeah, I guess. What's it like being dead? I don't mind it, admitted dearly. Worst thing is not having anyone to play with. But there must be lots of people up in that meadow, said the runt. Don't they ever play with you? Nope, said dearly. Mostly they sleep. And even when they walk, they can't be bothered to just go and see stuff and do things. They can't be bothered with me. See that tree? It's a beech tree. It's smooth gray bark, cracked with age. It sat in what must once have been the town square 90 years before. Yeah, So the runt. You want to climb it? It looks kind of high. It is real high, but it's easy to climb. I'll show you. It was easy to climb. There were handholds in the bark, and the boys went up the big beach like a couple of monkeys or pirates or warriors. From the top of the tree, one could see the whole world. The sky was starting to lighten just a hair to the east. Everything waited. The night was ending. The world was holding its breath, preparing to begin again. This was the best day I ever had, said the run. Me too, said Dearly. What are you going to do now? I don't know, said the run. He imagined himself going on across the world, all the way to the sea. He imagined himself growing up, growing older, bringing himself up by his bootstraps. Somewhere and there he would become fabulously wealthy and... Then he would go back to the house with the twins in it, and he would drive up to the door in his wonderful car. Perhaps he would turn up at a football game. In his imagination, the twins had neither aged nor grown, and look down at them in a kindly way. He would buy them all, the twins, his parents, a meal at the finest restaurant in the city, and they would tell him how badly they had misunderstood him and mistreated him. They apologized and wept, and through it all, he said nothing. He let their apologies wash over him. Then he would give each of them a gift, and afterward he would leave their lives once more, this time for good. It was a fine dream. In reality, he knew he would keep walking be found tomorrow or the day after and go home and be yelled at and everything would be the same as it ever was and day after day hour after hour until the end of time he'd still be the runt only they'd be mad at him for having dared to walk away I have to go to bed soon said dearly I started to climb down the big beech tree Climbing down the tree was harder, the runt found. You couldn't see where you were putting your feet, and you had to feel around for something to put them in. Several times he slipped and slid, but dearly went down ahead of him and would say things like, Oh, to the right now. They both made it down just fine. 
The sky continued to lighten and the moon was fading and it was harder to see. They clambered back through the gully. Sometimes the runt wasn't sure that Dearly was there at all, but when he got to the top, he saw the boys waiting for him. They didn't say much as they walked up to the meadow filled with stones. The runt put his arm over Dearly's shoulders and they walked in step up the hill. Well, said Dearly, thanks for coming over. I had a good time, said the runt. Yeah, said Dearly. Me too. Down in the woods somewhere, a bird began to sing. If I wanted to stay, said the runt. Then he stopped. I might never get another chance to change it, thought the runt. He'd never get to the sea. They'd never let him. Dearly didn't say anything. Not for a long time. The world was gray. More birds joined the first. I can't do it said dearly eventually but they might who the ones in there the fair boy pointed up the slope into the tumble-down farmhouse with the jagged broken windows silhouetted against the dawn the gray light had not changed it the runt shivered there's people in there he said i thought you said it was empty it, it ain't empty said dearly. I said nobody lives there. Different things. Looked up at the sky. I gotta go now, he added, and he squeezed the runt's hand, and then he just wasn't there any longer. The runt stood in the little graveyard, all on his own. He listened to the bird song on the morning air, then he made his way up to the hill. It was harder by himself. He picked up his school bag from the place he had left it. He ate his last Milky Way and stared at the tumble-down building. The empty windows of the farmhouse were like eyes watching him. It was darker inside there. Darker than anything. He pushed his way through the weed-choked yard down to the door of the farmhouse. It was mostly crumbled away. He stopped at the doorway, hesitating, wondering if this was wise. He could smell damp and rot and something else underneath. He thought he heard something move deep in the house, in the cellar, maybe, or the attic? A shuffle, maybe, or a hop? It was hard to tell. Eventually, he went inside. Nobody said anything. October filled his wooden mug with apple cider, and when he was done, and drained it and filled it again. It was a story, said December. I'll say that for it. He rubbed his pale blue eyes with a fist. The fire was almost out. What happened next? asked June nervously, after, after he went to the house. 
May sitting next to her put her hand on June's arm. Better not to think about it, she said. Anyone else want to turn? asked August. There was silence. Then I think we're done. There needs to be an official motion, pointed out February. All in favor? said October. There was a chorus of eyes. All against? Silence. Then I declare this meeting adjourned. They got up from the fireside, stretching and yawning, and walked away into the wood in ones and twos and threes until only October and his neighbor remained. Your turn in the chair next time, said October. I know, said November. He was pale and thin-lipped. He helped October out of the wooden chair. I like your stories. Mine are always too dark. I don't think so, said October. It's just that your nights are longer and you aren't as warm. Put it like that, said November, and I feel better. I suppose we can't help who we are. That's the spirit, said his brother. And they touched hands as they walked away from the fire's orange embers, taking their stories with them back into the dark. Special thanks to Neil Gaiman for his affirmative tweet giving our lowly little podcast permission to read one of his works. Neil Gaiman is the much-beloved author of such great works as The Sandman, Stardust, American Gods, Coraline, The Graveyard Book, and frankly, too many amazing pieces for us to even begin to list off. This particular tale is from his collection of short fiction called Fragile Things. You can find him readily enough on Twitter, as you may have guessed, or see more of his works at www.neilgaiman.com. Thanks again. Wittershin Stories is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and musician Joe Saborin. If you've enjoyed what you're listening to, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with the seat open for you by the fire.